For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back when Bill Clinton was facing impeachment in the Senate, the guy in charge of making the case against him was a relatively green congressman from South Carolina named Lindsey Graham. You can still look up Graham's closing arguments against Clinton on C-SPAN, along with a lot of other videotape that hasn't aged particularly well, especially now that Graham's moved up to the Senate. 20 years ago, he was urging his colleagues to remain impartial when it came to impeachment. Members of the Senate have said, I understand everything there is about this case, and I won't vote to impeach the president. Please allow the facts to do the talking. Don't decide the case before the case is in. Now... As Graham gets ready to sit in judgment against President Trump, he sounds pretty different. I am clearly made up my mind. I'm not trying to hide the fact that I have disdain for the accusations in the process. I am ready to vote on the underlying articles. I don't really need to hear a lot of witnesses. But the president said... This discrepancy would be almost funny if it didn't make your head spin. Yeah, I mean, he's found himself at the center of everything for a number of reasons. But, I mean, we all know that he'll act as a sort of de facto defense attorney for Trump. Mark Benelli reports for Rolling Stone, and he found himself wondering about Senator Graham because there have just been so many different versions of him. Even in the last few weeks, this impeachment inquiry has forced Lindsey Graham into a very public argument with himself— like when he announced he was launching an investigation into Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Announced a separate investigation into your friend Joe Biden. And this was after a month or two of him saying he absolutely wouldn't be doing that, that he didn't see any reason to do that. Uh, Joe Biden is a, is a friend. He's one of the most decent people I've ever met in my life. But here's the deal. This whole process around the Ukraine uh, is reeks with politics. They've done everything but take a wrecking ball to Donald Trump and his family. We're not I think within 24 hours, a video surfaced. The bottom line is, if you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, then it's probably, you got a problem. <laughs> he put it in a very flowery Southern way, like one of the best people God has ever created or something like that. He's the nicest person I think I've ever met in politics. Is that right? He is as good a man as God ever created. It sort of felt like like a taped confession to a future crime. Here you have evidence <laughs> of him sort of praising this guy who is he was genuinely a friend, you know. And, and Graham has this reputation in the Senate of of reaching across the aisle for years, working with working with Democrats. And I think Biden is is was and is a friend. And yet, you know, fast forward to late 2019, and he's willing to accuse this friend of corruption when, in fact, he knows the person he's carrying water for, the president, is the corrupt one. Graham must know that. So uh, You think he does? I, he's a smart guy. I think, yeah, I think he does. Today on the show, there's no way to know exactly what Lindsey Graham is thinking. But Mark, 
did his best to find out. He traveled to Graham's home state, talked to people who worked with the senator for years, all in an effort to figure out what's driving one of the most influential lawmakers in Washington. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In the years before Trump took office, Lindsey Graham had a pretty good reputation on Capitol Hill. Fellow lawmakers and staffers, they thought he was funny, likable a good political negotiator. He tried to pass climate change legislation and immigration reform. Would you call Lindsey Graham a compromiser? Yeah, I mean, that's has been his reputation over the years, particularly once he got into the Senate. Or in the House, he was actually more of, a, interestingly, he was more of a kind of doctrinaire conservative. And Graham has this reputation in the Senate of, of reaching across the aisle. Graham was part of the, the so-called Gang of Eight, working on immigration reform. I think you talked to someone who said, oh, yeah, any of these little gangs of whoever, like Lindsay's in the middle of them. Yeah, he 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 gets in the mix and in, in, in those sorts of things. And, and and one of his former staffers said he, he lived for that. That was sort of cracking the code, figuring out the way the puzzle could come together on these on these issues was what he felt like he was good at. That's his main skill as a politician, reading the room and getting along with other people and, and figuring out ways to bring people together. Can we talk a little bit about Graham as a trial lawyer? Because it seems to be where he learned some of the techniques that we now see years later in the Senate. Yeah. You know, when he ran for president in 2015, he, he as all candidates do, or he, he published this very kind of anodyne campaign memoir that's not very interesting. I think it's called My Story. <laughs> Great title, right? Right. I mean, what, what, a, what a grabber. But there was a passage that I thought was was quite telling, perhaps uh, inadvertently. And he, he's talking about when he became a trial lawyer. He was a JAG lawyer in the Air Force. He talks in the book about how, you know, when he first started as a trial lawyer, he immediately realized this is what he was meant to do. And he... he Why? Um, he says in the book, it's it was it's like writing, directing, and starring in a play. And he just was good at it. 
And he, he, he talks at length about how he even loved all the sort of actorly business that you do. You know, you shuffle the papers dramatically. You, you kind of walk across the, the courtroom in a certain way and you, you make a dramatic pause. In that memoir, Graham writes about how he and his law partner, a guy named Larry Brandt, developed this good cop, bad cop routine whenever they worked a trial together. Larry would get a witness agitated, and Graham would come in and smooth things over. Brant is still a lawyer down in South Carolina, so Mark flew down and paid him a visit. He's, you know, a, a fellow a fellow vet. He also had a sort of mentor role to, to Graham, but they're still friends. They, they have dinner together when Graham's back in town. You know, I met with him in his office. And this and this guy is, you know, he's, he said he's voted for d- Republicans and Democrats, but that he, he he loathes Trump. His flag was at half mast, and he said it's not going back up to full mast until Trump is out of office. <laughs> <laughs> so we were sitting in his law office, and he said, you know, Lindsey has sat right here where you're sitting, and I've, you know, run down Trump, and he's just laughed and said that Trump's like a little boy, and he's just as baffled as everyone else by the change. Graham's relationship with Trump has been especially baffling. To his former law partner, sure, but also to casual political observers. When the president was running for office, Graham was one of his biggest critics. He'd say, if you wanted to make America great again, you should tell Donald Trump to go to hell. What turns you on about Cruz? Uh, That he's not Trump. (laughs) When Graham showed up on The Daily Show back then, he was endorsing Ted Cruz, even though he'd joked about murdering Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate, that's how much he hated Trump. I think his campaign is opportunistic, race-baiting, religious bigotry, xenophobia. Other than that, he'd be a good nominee. But when Donald Trump was actually elected, all of this started to change. The Bob Woodward book about uh, Trump's first year in, in office, Fear, has a section that you know, the source is probably either Graham himself or somebody very close to Graham. But but basically, you know, he'd been very critical of Trump throughout the campaign, didn't vote for Trump. He voted for Evan McMullen, the third party candidate. A few months into the presidency, Reince Priebus, the chief of staff at the time, came to came to Graham and said, look, you're a fun guy. He needs to have fun guys around him. Why don't you come to the Oval Office and just meet him? And so Graham takes the meeting, of course. And he goes in with a prepared speech, but before he can deliver it, Trump apparently jumps up and gives him a big hug and says, I need you to be my friend. And Graham, you know, at that moment, it seems like he launched into his familiar country lawyer mode where he saw an opening and took it. And he basically started to flatter President Trump and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically you're screwed with this Congress, but he didn't use the word screwed. And, uh, you know, they're, they're incompetent. If I was looking to buy a used car, I would not let a single one of these people, you know, help negotiate. I would let you buy me a new used car, Mr. President. And he just, it, you know, it seems like such naked, <laughs> such a naked appeal to his ego, especially that early on in, in Trump's presidency, maybe not an unreasonable play. If you think about this guy as somebody who has no real deep policy beliefs, very little actual policy knowledge. I mean, he, he, he you know, the thing that, that Trump cares about is, is himself, you know, and, and feeling like he's won. So if you're somebody like Graham or Paul Ryan or any number of Republicans, you might at that early stage have thought, okay, 
maybe I'll play the game a little bit. Maybe I'll suck it up. It'll be kind of humiliating, but I can I can work this guy and whisper in his ear and nudge him in my direction. The thing about getting closer to the president was that for Graham, it meant rejecting so much of what he'd said and done before Trump took office. Graham had spent years cultivating a relationship with John McCain. He considered him a mentor, almost a father figure. And McCain was one of the few lawmakers in Washington who openly despised the president. Trump was even banned from McCain's funeral. Somehow, that didn't deter Graham. The thing is, he didn't really go full Trump sycophant until after McCain's death. I mean, really the moment things seemed to turn that everybody points to was the Kavanaugh hearing. There was this big, surprising, dramatic moment where Graham just erupts. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And if you really wanted to know the truth, you sure as hell wouldn't have done what you've done to this guy. I cannot imagine what you and your family have gone through. Boy, y'all want power. God, I hope you never get it. I hope the American people can see through this sham. Nobody really saw it coming. And and that felt like the turning point. And after that, he was fully team Trump. And I think he, he you know, he's facing re-election uh, this year, 2020. People I talked to in South Carolina, including a conservative journalist and blogger, uh, a guy named Will Folks, told me that he'd written a, a column a couple of years earlier titled Dead Senator Walking. He said hmm. Graham's polling was so bad, he, he was... He was definitely going to be primaried, and he did not have a chance. So Graham, you know, again, he sees the polling. He knows what's up. And post-Kavanaugh, his poll numbers in the state went up 20 points, and his fundraising went through the roof. I mean, this last year, the third quarter of 2019, he raised more money than any other Republican senator. I mean, (laughs) the quote this blogger gave you was, the saying down here is, they wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. People really seem to dislike Lindsey Graham. I guess there's an argument to be made that changing like this may be responding to his constituents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to a degree. And I do wonder if psychologically, you know, the Kavanaugh hearing could have been a way of surviving, you know, like like putting on that show could have been a way of signaling his conservative good standing to the people back home. But the way it ended up playing out, he, he, he was suddenly the white hot center of attention in a way that he hadn't been. You know, before that, think about it, he had been John McCain's sidekick. He had been the, the Republican who would always be sort of trying to compromise with Democrats, but you couldn't really trust him. Now he's the guy who talks to the president almost every day, who goes golfing with him, who knows what the president is thinking. Reporters want to talk to that guy. Reporters gather around outside of his office. He's, you know, invited on all the Sunday shows. He's, as he himself said, he wants to be relevant, and he's very relevant now. You spoke to this guy, Steve Schmidt, who worked with John McCain, and he sees what you're talking about now, this relevance, as sort of part and parcel of the relationship that Lindsey Graham cultivated with John McCain. He used such an elegant example (laughs) of it being like Lindsey Graham is a pilot fish and he's looking for a shark to protect him. 
Yeah, basically, yeah, sort of alpha beta analogy. He said, you know, for years and years, the pilot fish that is Lindsey Graham attached himself to the shark that was John McCain. And and because that shark, the McCain shark was seen as a virtuous and good shark, uh, Lindsey took on those, those attributes as well. Trump's the new shark. And, you know, he, Schmidt says that, that, that what Graham wants more than anything is that kind of power, and he can't achieve it on his own merits. He needs to attach himself to somebody. And the way you're putting it, it sounds a little bit like he's leveled up. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You must have tried to get Lindsey Graham to speak to you for this article. Oh, we did, yeah. Uh, this time around, his spokesperson said that, you know, he was, you know, thanked me for reaching out, but just said he was too busy. Yeah, it would have been great to talk to him. I wonder why you think some of the sources you talked to wanted to speak with you. I mean, you spoke to people who were quite close with Lindsey Graham, including this law partner who worked with him for years, still has a relationship with him. Why do you think they wanted to talk? I think a lot of these people want to get a message to him in a way. The law partner, certainly Larry Brandt, feels really confused and on some level betrayed. He, he, he told me that he's spent years defending Graham to, to people in South Carolina, people writing him down saying, oh, you know, this guy, I don't trust him. He's kind of a squish. He goes back and forth. And, and Brandt said he's always defended him, and now he feels like he can't defend him. And there was a real sense of betrayal among a lot of people. Everyone was, was watching Graham carefully as he started to suddenly be Trump's best buddy, golfing with him, you know, making these obsequious speeches about him. And people were just talking amongst themselves, saying, like, okay, what's his play? What's he doing? Is he trying to be, is he angling for a cabinet position? Is he trying to be attorney general? What's he getting? Um, that's, the, that's the mystery. So I think, I think people wanted to just send him a message. This fall, Mark was watching Graham carefully, too, trying to figure this puzzle out. And that's when he saw this tape from a White House event. Uh, Lindsay, I'd like to have you come up and say a few words. You've been terrific. Thank you very much. Graham told his own version of his first White House meeting with the president, the one where Trump hugged him, asked for his help. After I got beat like a dog, which he likes hearing, he called me over to the White House and said, I'd like you to help me. I said, I'd love to help you be a great president because you're now my president. And he says, I don't have your phone number. And I said, there's a reason for that. <laughs> and the crowd, you know, laughs knowingly because, of course, during the campaign, when, when Graham was running against Trump, Trump famously in a speech called him an idiot and then gave out his, his telephone number at this televised rally and told his supporters, you know, you should try this number. And, and they did. And they did. <laughs> and it's a funny, you know, Graham's sort of tells the self-deprecating story about it and says, you know, that was the highlight of my campaign. Ha ha ha. So the highlight of my campaign was when you gave out my phone number. If I did as well as my phone number, it might have been a different story. <laughs> then I went back and looked and, and actually what set Trump off was Graham attacking Trump in the wake of Trump's remarks about John McCain. Uh, his his very infamous remarks about how you know he prefers war heroes who aren't captured, and after Trump said that, you know Graham went on television and basically said, "There's no way 
the American people will elect this guy. He's completely unfit. And, and that's what Trump was responding to. And so it's, it's really interesting that now he's now it's a joke. And uh, defending John McCain. Yeah. This doxing that happened in the wake of his defense of John McCain, his very noble defense of his good friend, one of his best friends, is now a joke. And it's it's part of a, a speech he's giving to to boost this president, a speech which ended with him saying, God bless you, Mr. President, you know, and you'll you know, when you're reelected this fall, blah, blah, blah. How did you end up feeling about Lindsey Graham when all your reporting was over? I find him still, you know, despite having spoken with all of these people, um, I still find him a somewhat mystifying figure. I mean, I think, you know, the, the simplest answer as to why he's doing what he's doing is, of course, just survival. You want to remain a U.S. senator in South Carolina, you have to be close to the president. It's politics. He's done interviews yeah. where he's basically said as much. Then you kind of get to thinking about, well, what are his core beliefs? Does he have core beliefs? You know, like maybe there aren't core beliefs. Maybe hanging on to power is what it's all about. Hanging on to relevancy, whatever that means. Mark Benelli, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Mark Benelli writes for Rolling Stone and The New York Times Magazine. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. I'm Mary Harris. You can follow me on Twitter, and not just because I tweet pictures of Mark Joseph Stern. I'm also just, like, funny sometimes. Okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.